Hello and welcome to Living Wow Feminist. Living Wow Feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the emotional rollercoaster ride of living a feminist life. I'm your host, feminist writer, researcher, and author, Jen Thorpe. Just a note that today's episode deals with some difficult topics, so please do take care of yourselves while you're listening. Today on the podcast, I'm really excited to be talking to Della Guala. Della is a full-time feminist, activist writer, reluctant spiritualist, and hard truths enthusiast. She holds a master's degree in gender studies from the SOAS University of London and a master's in creative writing from the University of Cape Town. She's written for the IOL news website, Cape Argus newspaper, New Frame and Mahala magazine. Della's essays have been published in Feminism Is and in the Life Writing Collective's book, This Is How It Is. She's currently the mobilizer-in-chief at an organization called the Restitution Foundation. Her piece in Feminism Is is called When the Anger Runs Out, and in that piece she says, For two years I wore rage like a cape. I lashed out at anyone I felt was wrong, and I ranted, non-stop. I ranted online, in face-to-face conversations, with friends, and during pillow talk with my partner. I ranted over the phone via email via Skype. I angered from the bottom of my belly at march after march, protest after protest, social justice meeting after social justice meeting. But then the rage became sadness. Sadness did not serve me like rage did, but I kept going. But then the sadness gave way to burnout. I kept on because it was the only thing I knew to do until external intervention told me to stop. Della's piece explores the aftermath of rape, the harmful impact of rape culture, and the emotional roller coaster of anti-rape activism. It also explores the healing that can come from connection, from meditation, and from meeting and learning from feminists online and in person. So thank you, Della, for coming on the show today and talking about all of these difficult and important topics with me. Hi. Good <laughs> to be on the podcast. I like listening to my bio, and I guess I haven't actually read my own piece of writing in a long time. Um, so it it actually sort of like knocked me back a little bit to sort of mm. hear my own words. And it's kind of strange that that can happen sometimes, that when you are writing, I think you are just going through the process and you're just getting it down. But there's something about hearing your writing um, being let, read out loud, which makes it seem weirdly very real um Mm. and makes you think wow i can't believe that happened um Mm. or i guess in some cases i can't believe that happened to me or i can't believe that i'm that person that that is describing um but it's always yeah always an interesting experience having um pieces of your writing read out loud Mm. I mean, it's been some time since this piece was written and um, since the piece was published. So I just want to, for the purposes of people who may not have read it, read some of the back, uh, some of the piece at the beginning. So it starts with someone at a party asking you why you are a feminist and you struggle with the decision whether to give them the generic answer or whether to tell them that for you it was rape that made you a feminist. 
and that you write about rape because it happened to you. You say in that piece, how do I say to these strangers with their tone of tepid curiosity at these social events that becoming a feminist was a matter of my survival, that it was with very little exaggeration a life or death situation for me? And it's been all of these years since you submitted and wrote, um, and I'm wondering how you feel about this piece now and, and whether your answer of why you are a feminist to strangers at parties has changed at all. I mean, I think the truth of the piece is still there. Like, I think sexual assault or experiencing sexual violence very much um, is what led me to feminism because that was where I found a space where I felt like believed or where I felt supported or where I felt like there was language to understand what had happened to me. Um, and I think... I think the language one is actually a very big one that people underestimate because I think once you find out that there's a word um, to describe or there's like a framework or there's people that have been thinking about what you have experienced, then it makes you feel like um, I don't have to do this alone or I'm not alone in having experienced this. Um, so I think like as the origin story of what really, really led me to feminism, I think um, experiencing sexual violence, that's still true. Um, in terms of how much I tell people at parties or social events, um, I think I'm probably holding my cards to my chest a little bit more these days. I think there was a point um, after experiencing something traumatic where I felt that um, how you do this or how you um, get past this or keep going is by being vulnerable and telling the truth and telling the truth and telling the truth. Um, and I think truth-telling is very important. But I think what I'm learning more and more is, I think, for vulnerability, you also need trust. Um, so there's also just space to... Um, just tell people who you know are going to support and care for you and give the very surface level answers when someone approaches you from, like I said, a space of tepid curiosity. Um, I think anyone who does writing that is like autobiographical or um, sort of memoir or like personal essays, um, sometimes you can feel like you you owe people your story or you owe large parts of your story or because you've given people access to your story at some other point in time um, that somehow people should have access to your personal narratives. But I think what I've learned more and more across the years is that um, you share what you are ready to share and what you've been through a process that feels makes you feel solid in sharing and then the rest of who you are and the rest of your narratives can just belong to people or be shared with people that care about you and that you trust. I think that's very helpful advice for people who are listening who are not sure how to go about telling their story of trauma, where whatever that trauma was, is a healthy understanding of who who is trustworthy enough to hold your story for you and with you um, is very, very important. 
you you talk in your piece about um the aftermath and you describe it as sort of being unplugged from the matrix like you couldn't unsee or unlive what you learned and seen um and then you discovered on the internet a sort of window that led a bit of light into the dark so can you tell me about what that experience of hearing the stories of Oprah and others online meant for you at that time in your journey? I think at that time of the journey, it really meant everything to me. Um, I think trauma and sexual violence can feel like a very deeply lonely journey. Um, and I think for me, it was compounded by the fact that I was by myself in um, rural Korea. Like, I guess I talked about in the piece, I was teaching English in Korea at the time. So I was in like a, a country where I was a foreigner and a country where I don't speak the language and in a rural setting, because that's the school I'd been placed. So I think the levels of loneliness were really compounded. Um, and I didn't have the usual support structure that I would have had if I had been at home. So the internet became a lifesaver for me during that time. I think um, I would just get home from work and immediately sort of turn to YouTube or turn to social media to hear um, those stories, to try and figure out how to process and also to know that you do, you do survive this. I think that's also something that becomes key is like, oh, there are people who have done this journey and have survived this um, and are not, there's no such thing as intact. I don't think there's anything such as intact after trauma, um, but have sort of done the journey and they're doing okay. Um, so hearing other people's stories and also hearing about their healing journeys as well was really really key for me um but not hearing about healing journeys in a very sanitized way i think people who are honest about their grief and their anger and their pain and their hurt and how hard it is are so key for the journey as well because sometimes you can get the very watered down narratives of um, this thing happened, but look at me now, I'm doing great. Or this thing happened, I forgave and I moved on. And um, those sort of stories can also be quite harmful, um, stories that oversimplify that experience or invalidate people's emotions or feelings around that experience. Um, so I was lucky to find, as I dug more and more, stories where people were honest about all of the messiness of the process i think um all of the messiness of healing journeys or trying to come to terms with trauma because we do nobody any favors by trying to pretend um that it isn't going to be this messy and hard um and feel insurmountable at times in particular, you describe the discovery of Audre Lorde's working and how she became, as you describe, this touchstone of your anger. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, Audre Lorde's writing and what it's meant for you? I think um, I came across Audre Lorde 
probably the year after uh, the sexual assault happened. So a year after, and I was reading, reading um, more feminist texts, and I was trying to sort of wrap my head around, um, especially like black feminist thinkers. And Audre Lorde felt like someone who can put language to things that you couldn't quite unpack yourself. I think that that was always the beauty of her writing or also being able to just name anger, I think, which can be such a shame-filled thing for women. Um, I think we're getting to a point where it's getting much better, but I think anger seems to be one of those sort of emotional or feeling experiences that is still shamed in women or that is still um, brushed aside. And I think um, Audre Lorde also was able to talk about anger in a personal and political way um, to talk about, I guess she talks about being feeling dismissed or marginalized in white feminist spaces at the time, but also feeling dismissed and marginalized in sort of spaces that were meant for black liberation. So I think she's like one of those thinkers that communicates early on what intersectionality is, how you can feel like different parts of your identity are split or torn apart um, and feel not really seen or heard in spaces where you feel like you should be seen and heard. Um, so I feel like that's what Sister Outsider felt like when I first read it. And it's like a collection of speeches and writings and essays. Um, so it's, yeah, Audrey Lord was just, just beautiful. I don't know if there's like a, a better word to describe um, the writing in Sister Outsider. It's just really beautiful. Um, mm -hmm. And then now, I guess later on, I've I reread some of Sister Outsider last year while doing my gender uh, degree, um, and I guess it's interesting when a writer you think you know or writing you think you know becomes something new for you, and I think that's what happened last year. Or you've focused on one aspect of um, what someone said at a, a specific point in your life because you could appreciate or you could relate to um, that one aspect at that time, um, which is the anger. Whereas now I feel like I think a lot about Audre Lorde's writing on like pleasure um, or on creativity, which is, I guess, the uses of the erotic, which is again in the same book, um, but meant, I guess, didn't mean as much to me then as it means to me now. Um, so I guess that's, I think there's an Audrey Lord for every part of your life, basically. <laughs> every stage of your life, basically. So, yeah. I think it's beautiful when you can read a text and learn something different every time. And I think that collection in particular is one of those that is worth rereading at different points in your life. Um, I wanted to speak to you a little bit about burnout because it's something I have experienced myself as well. Um, and you speak about how, you know, you were fueled by anger and this sort of compulsion to keep, 
being an activist to keep speaking, to keep writing, but that eventually this, I mean, we know from science, this actually physically affects your body and you can't actually continue. Um, And gender-based violence, anti-gender-based violence activism puts you right back at the front line of the real horror of sexual violence. And it doesn't often, there isn't much room in those type of activist spaces for observing what you've just described now about Oprah and others online, where you actually see that they went on a journey and that they're not the same as before. They're not like this healed, perfect person, but that there was some process of healing that has taken place. Um, And I wonder for you now, who was forced to stop doing that work for a little bit by burnout, what you would say to younger activists who are feeling the same thing and sense of fatigue now and, and what burnout has taught you about how to manage your energy in a healthier way? I guess the biggest thing that burnout teaches you is you really can't lie to yourself. Um, I think externally you can keep pushing, you can keep going, you can sort of pretend that everything is sort of manageable and you are able to sort of do the work regardless. Um, But I think your body knows, I guess I always think of that like book title, I guess that of a book I have not read is like your body keeps the score Um, and your body does keep the score. So once that fatigue and once that, um, exhaustion really hits and gets to you you can no longer um you can just no longer keep the ruse up or you can no longer ignore how you're truly feeling or um yes i think you can just no longer ignore how you're truly feeling um and i think i actually think it's ironic because i think part of the work of of patriarchy or oppressive structures and systems is to sort of push women to ignore um, their sort of internal compass, their internal voice, their feelings, um, how the world is making them feel, how society is making them feel. Um, And I think burnout becomes a roadblock where you have to turn in and contend with actually how you're feeling. Um, so it's a terrible experience. I would not wish it on anyone. But for me, it forced me to, for instance, go to trauma therapy, um, deal with, I had physical issues like really dismally low iron levels, um, which again, I was like, everybody is just tired. This is just what being a, an adult is, is just exhaustion. Um, and having to sort of face the idea that firstly, no, there's like an underlying physical issue for why you're exhausted, but also you don't have to be completely flatlined by life to sort of do work that you care about. Um, so I don't know, I feel like it's a really long winded way to say, don't ignore what you're feeling. Um, Mm even if you think it's for a greater cause, it's for a greater purpose, um, I guess you will keep going from a sense of obligation and duty for a while, but there will be a reckoning because again, Mm. you can 
lie about how you're doing externally, but internally, um, your body will sort of will keep you in check. I think mm. um, is the only way I can put it. Your body will definitely keep you in check. So um, I guess again, my piece of advice is just being honest with yourself. And mm. it's it's not easy. I mean, a lot of people work in social justice spaces, and that's how they earn their money, for instance. So it's it's not an easy. There's no easy fix of like, oh, okay, well, you can just take time off and rest. Um, some people are lucky enough to have that space to be able to do it, and some people are not. Um, so some people are fighting against. Um, oppressive structures or abuse or traumatic experience, experiences that impact their life every single day. Um, and the fight is part of their everyday personal life. Um, so the idea to sort of sit back or take some time out and rest um, feels ridiculous. And I, I completely get that as well. Um, but I also feel like we get to the point where we just have no choice. Um, and until, and I think it would be great to sort of deal with things before you get to that point. Um, mm. But we're not a culture, again, that celebrates rest or mm. um, really is like, wow, you've really done a lot of internal emotional work. That's great. Um, we're not yet a culture that celebrates that. I've also appreciated that about feminism um being very clear about the need for caring about yourself as a political project again something that came out of audrey lord and other people of like your care and taking care of yourself is a part of the political project you can't separate it from your activism work um, because that is part of the work um so again, sometimes these are ideas like rest, like self-care, like self-love, um, all of or healing. Sometimes these ideas are intellectual and it takes a long time for it to sink into um, your actual life. And that's fine too. I also think we need to be gentle and compassionate with ourselves. Whereas sometimes you're going to know better and you're not going to do better. Um, mm. And eventually, hopefully, you get to the point where you know better and do better. But again, that is also an ugly and messy process. Um, and all you can do is be as tender and gentle with yourself as you can, um, whether you're still pushing yourself beyond your limits or whether you're finally at a point where you have time to rest. Yeah, I mean, I think for a lot of people working in um, activist spaces, there's a sense of guilt that comes from rest as well, that, you know, if I rest now, then this thing won't get done, or then no one will know the knowledge that I have to share, or that, you know, things will only get worse if we don't work on gender-based violence every single second of every single day. Um, but I think that's what's so important about recognizing that you are part of a connected community of whether it's feminists or social justice activists or anti-violence activists, that if you need a rest day, there's others in your team who are going to help to pick up the slack um, and that you can give yourself that permission to rest because your body physically needs it as well. Um, 
I also liked how you decided when you when your body kept the score and forced you to rest that you sought out um, meditation and you, you said it was meditation that helped you begin to heal from the burnout and that you were inspired by the words of Dr. Martin Luther King, who's junior, who said, love and justice are indivisible and that effective and humane movements for social justice can't do their work without with one and not the other. So tell me a bit about how meditation became part of your life at that time and whether it's still part of your life all these years later and, and why meditation is a helpful practice for social justice activists or anyone listening. I think I've always turned to meditation during really difficult times, to be honest. Um, I actually wish I was more um, consistent when I was happy. <laughs> but I seem to always turn to meditation practices when I think I'm trying to process or deal with something. Um, and I think that's fair enough, too. And I, I think I'm quite grateful, to be honest, to my mother is she role modeled that. I think I've gotten those kind of tools um, from seeing her or from her passing on meditation practices. Um, and I think they've been part of my practice of dealing with grief and loss and trauma. Um, and I guess at that point that you've talked about burnout. So, um, I guess, again, I think meditation is an, an opportunity for rest, but it's also an opportunity to take some time to be honest with yourself. I think it's like a, a recurring thing to really, when you start to get still and quiet and you give yourself a moment, then you have to face all the things that you're not facing or that you're not um owning up to in specific ways or all the feelings that you are ignoring um, or all of the sort of flags or indicators that you need time that you're not taking. So um, I, I have to say like meditation practices for me were probably introduced by just living or growing up with my mother um, and I'm very lucky that that's true. Um, and then as a grown-up, I think I've always just turned to it um, as, as a way of just making sense of what's going on internally or at least getting a breather from what's going on externally. Um, I've also, I guess, turned to writing again. Mm -hmm. I think meditation and writing are, I guess, healing practices that I probably turn to repeatedly um, throughout my life. Um, and I often have to write my way th through things to understand them. Um, and I think I'm able to usually better explain myself um, in a written form rather than in any other form. So I think journaling is another way of um, getting still, um, listening to yourself or um, finding out things about yourself that you are probably going on on a subconscious level, but you're not paying attention to. And I'm, again, I think I'm grateful that in more feminist spaces, like these um, means of taking care of yourself, like journaling, like meditation, like creative practices, like just making something, um, are 
are spoken of or are advocated for, or at least I'm lucky in feminist spaces I have been, um, where these, like no one thinks of these as ridiculous or don't say they're ridiculous or they don't um, downplay the importance of these kind of self-care practices. Um, mm. But I also think that sometimes we talk about we talk about the importance of them, um, but don't actually make space to do them as well. Um, so that's that's the other thing in movement spaces is the danger of like, okay, we really need to put time and effort into taking care of ourselves and self-care, but then scheduling ridiculously long um meetings etc cetera, etc cetera, that take away from the ability to actually do those things yeah journaling meditation have been pretty con like constant and consistent friends and that the idea of martin luther king sort of talking about love and kindness as like a perfectly adequate place to do your activism um mm is is also really important because i think sometimes we need that intellectual understanding to deal with the guilt um i think that can also help with that guilt of that never enough or never doing enough um to have ideas of again self-worth self-compassion kindness and love built into how we understand like the political project how we understand activism can also really, I think, help with that feeling of just like never enoughness. Hmm. Yeah, I think journaling and meditation are practices that I have picked up through focusing on creativity and creative writing. And there are times there are times when the world is difficult when you do those practices to check in with yourself. And then you realize that you had thought you were fine the whole day <laughs> and then suddenly you're not that fine anymore. Or you, if you read them every week or two weeks that you realize, oh shit, these are the same issues that are coming up. There is actually something that I need to deal with here. So I also agree that they are nice practices to have to really take time to be more honest with yourself. And we've spoken quite a bit about writing and you have a master's in creative writing from UCT and a master's in gender studies from SOAS University in, in the UK. And as someone who is also a double master's person, why did you choose to do two masters and not to do a PhD? I guess I always wanted to do a master's and couldn't decide between creative writing or gender. Um, and I thought both of them were really important to me for very specific reasons. Um, I guess gender because of activism and personal experiences and creative writing because I always thought if I'm going to write something long for like long form, I'm going to need like a structure. So I thought if I ever wanted to sit down and write any kind of manuscript, I would need to do it in a space where someone else is holding me accountable. So... I just decided to do both. I was like, I can't decide either way. So I'm going to sort of try and figure out how to do both. So I started with the creative writing one at UCT. Um, and, I, and I guess it was an interesting journey because I was doing my creative writing masters the same time as Rhodes Must Fall and Fees Must Fall. Um, so it was a very strange journey to um 
want to write or um, want to focus on writing, but having so much going on, like on a sort of national level and also in your immediate environment, because I was at university at UCT during and present at all the, the meetings and the protest, etc. Um, so it was strange at the beginning of my masters, I think, because I was focused on student activism. I think I started to tell myself the lie that, oh, this is the real work and the writing work will um, will come later or is not as important. Um, I think at some point I was saying to people that I'm allegedly doing a master's in creative writing because I had put it so much on to the back burner or put it so much to the side that um, I was starting to feel like I was only allegedly a student. Um, but I think it was important for me at the end of that master's to realize the writing is just as just as vital, just as important. Um, and it's like the lifeblood of of activism and creative work is like the lifeblood, like so much of what you turn to when you're in movement spaces is writing. All of the people whose names that people talk about, I guess during the Feast Must Fall time, it was like Fanon, etc. All of that came from writing. Um, so I think the Masters in Creative Writing was a great lesson in not diminishing the worth of my own writing. Um, the Gender Studies one, I guess was always just, it felt like cementing a lot of what I had really learned um, from feminist spaces. Um, but again, it also felt like I needed to take a year away from Cape Town or take a year away from um, the spaces and the life that I knew here and um, take a breather. I feel like it was also like a a moment to put myself in a new environment and, and figure out who I was in that space. Um, so it felt like being being able to bolster or revisiting again feminist texts that I knew or feminist figures that I'd been lucky enough to meet in terms of like South African feminists, but also sort of taking a year away um, and trying to figure out who I was beyond sort of the, the bubble and the struggles, especially of UCT. And in your piece, you speak a bit about that because you say at the end, I'm not sure who I'll be in a couple of months and what I will call myself. And I love that you allowed yourself that room to grow and change and you've taken these deliberate steps to get a bit of distance from the identity that people have ascribed to you. And so I'm wondering three years after the piece comes out, what do you do call yourself? What is the what is the place where you find yourself now? How do, how has your feminism changed? I'm actually grateful that I was able to write that at the end of the piece because actually I remember when I got the email from you to submit, I was like, this is the most uncertain and unsure about who I am. I felt in a long time and I don't know if I can write the way that I usually write. So I'm grateful that um, I was sort of given a space just to talk about the fact that I was uncertain and I was unsure and I was um, trying to figure out sort of what labels and what identity works for me. Um, 
as I as I am now, I still find I guess so much resonance and so much of um, connection with like what I just broadly call intersectional feminism. I still um, I think draw a lot from that framework of understanding. Um, so feminist is still a label that I I happily take and happily identify with. Um, I guess another label that I'm I'm I identify with is is writer. Um, but I think I'm also in a space where I want to explore the other creative parts of myself. Um, and those are also parts of myself I've marginalized because um, they're they're not as I guess not as visible as the writing or the activism, like the parts of me that love to dance. Um, the part of me that loves to sing, um, and I'm really interested in in this point, sort of really investing time into into joy and also maybe things that don't necessarily make sense in again in how other people view me or how other people see me or how sometimes I've chosen to see myself. So um, that's how I identify. I was about to ask, what was the question again? (laughs) I think that's so amazing though. And I feel like we went on the same journey because also when I got to my second bout of burnout, I literally just couldn't even write anymore. I wasn't interested in writing. Writing felt like work, even though it was creative and I was making novels and not writing like long polemical essays. It just felt like something I was doing that wasn't only for myself. And I, went to the art shop near to the book lounge in Cape Town and I bought myself a lino cut set and I made all these weird stamps and I have a whole tab full of stamps sitting in my spare room at our house now and then I started trying out painting and it was so valuable to have these creative spaces that didn't have to have an economic or work value attached to them and it really helps you unlock a whole lot of other feelings of joy and delight in your body and in your world. So I think I highly encourage you to do that dancing, to do that singing, to do whatever creative project, you know, presents itself for you to do. And and I look forward to to seeing or hearing or I also took up the violin, which was really random. <laughs> but I, I recommend it. It's really it's it's freeing to do something where your failure doesn't matter to anyone, not even yourself. Am I allowed to ask how your writing is going? You are allowed to ask how it's going. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I um, I now have a full-time job. So writing is something for me that is, again, happening like on the weekends or happening sort of part-time where it's not for a long time I think it was sort of the sort of center of my life and I guess I'm in a strange phase now where it's um, not 100% the center of my life. Um, I guess the only things I've written recently is I wrote an, an article for, for New Frame which was also just fun because it was a book review um, and it's just lovely to write about books that you've loved um, and again that writing came from, I just want to write about um, this rather than this is required of me for some reason. 
so that's also freeing in its own way and and then I also submitted a piece for a book which I guess I don't know if I'm allowed to discuss I don't know but um that I've spent a little bit of time on so writing again is a thing that's been happening on the weekends I I think before I started my job I had it in my head that I was going to be that person who's like waking up early in the morning and writing two hours a day um and I haven't been that person and that's okay I think I've come to terms I've come to terms with the fact that that's okay and I'm writing project by project as as things come up um or as I see like a a deadline or I see a writing competition or something that I want to um take part in so right now I guess it's there's no solid routine and it's pretty haphazard and I I think I'm okay with that uh, to end off the podcast, I'm asking everybody the same three questions. So the first is, what is a book that has inspired your feminism? I guess the book that inspired my feminism, I've talked a little bit or quite a lot about earlier on, but I'll say more. Um, I guess the, the overall book is Sister Outsider. But the the essay, I think, that I have been really drawn to recently has been The Uses of the Erotic. Um and what brought me back to that piece was we actually read it um, as part of my like gender studies course last year. Um, but again, I think sometimes you read something years on and it finally sinks in or you finally have the experiences to understand it. And I think that that's what happens with this essay is um, the uses of the erotic basically talks about how we have this internal like feminine like life force within us um that can power our creative work or create can create meaning in our work and how uh the erotic is something that has been i guess she talks about it has been like um demeaned or pornified or just sort of made to be something that's just about um sex or sensation rather than the erotic force being something that can um, be a part of other parts of our life or create a sense of joy and play and pleasure um, in, in other parts of our life. So I'm really just interested in that idea of bringing like a sort of like feminine, beautiful spiritual power into your work or into your daily life um, and, and having a life that feels playful and creative and I don't know 100% how to do it yet but I love that idea um and I love that idea that like again um feeling and emotion and a creative force that's often been demeaned especially in women is is something that is worth um celebrating or is a is a is a source of power um so that is sort of the feminist piece that um, I've been drawn to recently. And if there's anyone out there who wants to sort of read it, there's actually like a um, an audio on YouTube of Audrey Lord reading the uses of the erotic or saying it because it was originally a speech. Um, so I highly recommend. <laughs>
The next question is, do you have a quote that inspires you or that you live by? I think the quote that seems to come up for me a lot is um, something that was said by a poet called Rudy Francisco. Um, and the quote goes something like, I'm still learning to love the parts of me that no one claps for. And I think that that's, that's like such an important journey for me is learning to love the parts of you that people do not celebrate or people don't even see. Um, and I think that that's been a huge part of the journey for the last couple of years um, because people people don't see you when you are like trying to pull yourself together in trauma therapy or trying to pull yourself together in a meditation retreat or trying to um, sort of just um, deal with yourself or do your inner work as it's called. Um, and I think so much of that process is just like learning to be with or learning to accept the parts of you that no one claps for. So I think, I feel like I think about Rudy Francisco's words a lot. They're very beautiful. The final question, though both of your previous answers sort of have a bit of advice in them, is what would be your advice for other feminists on their journeys? The big advice that pops into my head immediately is is not allowing people to dismiss how you feel. Um, I think a lot of the journey of feminism for me has been, again, going back to all those niggling feelings you have, like when someone makes a joke that makes you feel uncomfortable or um, when someone creeps on you or stares at you in specific ways or when someone dismisses your thoughts and you have that feeling that um, something is happening here. I'm uncomfortable because I'm being treated badly or I'm being discriminated against um, or I'm being ignored or I'm being pushed aside. And I think for so many people who've been marginalized, they, they internalize that feeling or feel or invalidate that feeling. Um, and I think for some reason, that's like the main idea that's popping up in terms of advice is to trust that discomfort, trust that feeling of something's not right here um, and sort of believe yourself, even if other people don't seem to see it, don't, don't seem to understand it, are not experiencing the same thing. Um, I think that's been a big ongoing lesson for me it's just like trusting trusting those internal voices that internal feeling um and not invalidating yourself Stella you have shared so much today about doing the work taking the time for yourself resting being kind I think so many people are going to listen to this and feel a sense of relief and self-love afterwards so thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today and for sharing your insights and your story Thank you so much for getting in contact with me and asking me to do this. Um, mm. It's good for us to think out loud sometimes to know, wait, do I really think that? It's good. <laughs> it's, mm. it's like therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of Living While Feminist with me, Jen Thorpe. Please do tune in next week to hear more from feminists about their lives and experiences. Take care of yourselves.